Welcome back to the program. Throughout all of the second half of the 20th century and well into the 21st, right up until this very moment, many have worked hard to institute some measure of affordable health care and health care reform in America, a country that prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act was the only modern Western nation not to have done so. It's no wonder, then, that the forces allied against it were powerful, well-financed, and prepared to do anything and say anything to stop it. After all, these are the very same people who are now working overtime to cut food stamps from the poor in America. Thus, in the absence of political success, they would try and use the courts, the courts they always derided as activists, to actively seek to overturn by judicial fiat that which they could not do by political means. That's the backdrop for Josh Blackman's look at the constitutional challenge to Obamacare. Josh Blackman is an assistant professor of law at South Texas College of Law and president of the Harlan Institute. He's published over a dozen law review articles about constitutional law, written numerous op-eds, and it is my pleasure to welcome Josh Blackman here to talk about his book, Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare, Josh Blackman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. One of the things that certainly we saw in the whole debate about the Affordable Health Care Act and certainly what has transpired since is that it is a classic struggle between all three branches of government. Certainly, historically, we have seen that from time to time. Talk about it in the context of this particular case. Thank you. And that was an excellent introduction, by the way. I might, I might steal that. Um, <laughs> The, the Affordable Care Act, commonly known as Obamacare, um, really brought together and united and divided all aspects of our government. Um, after the president's election in 2008, he made his first priority for his first term in office to be to pass this health care reform at the expense of uh, perhaps other laws that just kind of got left by the side. Um, this law engendered so much opposition from Republicans, and, and it wasn't just because um, they kind of oppose it on policy, but I think your comments are right. They saw this as kind of a fundamental reshaping of the American uh, uh, governmental system. This would drastically change the relationship between the state and the individual. And I, I think I think your your comments were, 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 were accurate. This was a big deal. The only problem was they lost big. In 2008, the Republicans lost. Uh, they lost the presidency um, in the House. They had, I think, uh, Democrats had like a 40-seat lead. And the Senate, they had a 60-vote lead, which effectively can stifle any uh, filibuster. So at this point, when the president uh, was pushing through the Affordable Care Act, this was viewed as a kind of a fait accompli, that there really wasn't any way to stop it. Uh, but something something interesting happened, where this this group kind of sprung up, um, not really out of nowhere, but 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 with this uh, aversion to the Affordable Care Act was the Tea Party. And throughout much of 2009 and 2010, this group gained a lot of prominence and attention, and they were able to direct so much um, ire onto this law. And a remarkable thing happened in the Senate was that after Senator Ted Kennedy passed away, um, he was replaced by a Republican, Scott Brown, in Massachusetts. And that vote was so pivotal because it effectively took away the Democrats' filibuster. So now you still had uh, overwhelming majorities in both houses of Congress. But uh, the president kind of had to act quick, and they pushed through a what was effectively a draft version of the Affordable Care Act, so they couldn't let it go back to the Senate. This this law passed both houses, and then the president signed it. And within eight minutes of when the law became law, um, lawsuits were filed, and these were very well coordinated lawsuits. One of the main lawsuits was filed in Florida. It was brought on behalf of 
26 state attorneys general, um, I think all but one were, were rep- all Republicans. And, and they brought this challenge, not necessarily disagreeing with the policy of the law, but they said, this is unconstitutional. Um, and we all remember the signs about broccoli. They said, effectively, Congress can't make me buy insurance. Congress doesn't have the power to regulate inactivity. And these challenges went throughout the court while there was still political posturing back in Washington. Um, and I'm sure as your listeners know well, at the very end of the case in 2012, uh, the Supreme Court narrowly upheld the law based on Chief Justice Roberts' vote, um, remarkably letting the law survive. And then they sent it back to the political realm. The 2012 election was fought in large part over Obamacare. Um, unfortunately for Republicans, at least, the law, um, their, their candidate, Mitt Romney, was the worst conceivable candidate to run on this issue for the very reason that in his own state, in Massachusetts, he had implemented Obamacare. Uh, uh, President Obama frequently called Romneycare Obamacare's godfather. So in the, the election, which was probably the, the last-ditch effort to stop Obamacare, the Republicans didn't get enough votes, and they lost. So we, we move forward to 2012. And still, um, yesterday or two days ago, uh, the entire Congress was clashing over this. We had uh, my uh, Senator Ted Cruz filibustering for almost 22 hours uh, to try and defund the law. Um, and this is a law that's been debated and thought on by the American people in the 2008 election, in the 2010 election, in the 2012 election. And, and, and for better or worse, by re-electing President Obama, uh, I think the American people signal that they've ratified that, okay, we're going to let this go forward. Yeah. Um, but still there are these last-ditch efforts, almost as kind of the one-yard line to bring it down. So this law, unlike almost any other uh, that I can think of in recent history, has divided the American people for now almost five years. Uh, um, it, it, it's truly, if I, if I may say, unprecedented. To what extent, though, because certainly focus groups and research and studies have been done on this, and when people are presented the individual parts of the Affordable Care Act, you find that the public, by and large, is in favor of it. When you present it as as the general rubric of Obamacare, you find a lot of negativity towards it. To what extent do we need to look at this as the largest single piece of legislation that has been put forth in a country which is as politically divided and as contentious as it is today? And certainly to to look at the origins of that, it goes back long before the Affordable Care Act. This is simply in many ways the manifestation, the legislative manifestation of what we have seen happen politically in America over the past 20 years. Um, I think that's right, and this is probably the most significant law passed in the, probably in the last 40 years, maybe since the Civil Rights era. Um, what was remarkable, though, about this law is that unlike laws like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Social Security Act, there was absolutely zero bipartisan support. In the Senate, not a single Republican voted for this law. In the House, 49% of the House opposed this law. So this was passed on razor-thin margins. Right, but so it's, to, very, to, it's but, very, very conception. Uh, but to answer the, second, the first part of your question, I think by and large, people's views on this law reflect their views on the president and the broader agenda. Um, I think everyone agrees that making health care cheaper is a good idea. I, I think, I think ev- most people would agree that allowing people with pre-existing conditions to have the ability to buy health insurance is probably a good idea. I think most people would agree on that. But what's remarkable about this law is that it seeks to transform not just these little provisions, but a lot of things. So when you throw in things like the individual mandate, which actually uh, imposes a penalty on those who don't buy health insurance, mm-hmm. or if you consider the business mandate, 
where employers who have more than 50 employees have to provide some minimum level of uh, coverage to people working full-time. Uh, you have a lot of provisions that uh, pile on top of the good parts. So, I mean, there is good and bad considering the individual right. parts. Uh, the law only works when you have all these other moving parts in conjunction with it. But if we look historically at other controversial pieces of legislation, many of which have been very contentious and very partisan over the years, whether it's tax legislation or social policy or whatever it may be. One of the things that we find is that those that are opposed to it, particularly when there are good parts and bad parts, as you say, work over time to change it, to amend it, to, to reframe it, to rework it in the context of circumstance and change and mistakes that are often made when such large and complex pieces of legislation are passed. What we are seeing here in terms of the response to it, the effort to defund it, the way people that are supporting it have been villainized, what we're seeing is equally unprecedented with, with regard to the opposition here. No, that, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, there's not really been any kind of alternate uh, policy offerings of what we should do instead of this. What complicates this further, though, is the president knows full well, and Harry Reid knows as well, that they can't tinker with this law because the second they try and open it up and tinker with it, it'll be filibustered and dismantled. So this goes back to the point I made before. The version of the law we have now was effectively a draft. It was never meant to be final. And there were a lot of kinks that would have been ironed out during the normal legislative process. But the president made the decision that because of Scott Brown's election, they're just going to push forward and hope to be able to fix it later. Again, um, again those problems are reflective uh, certainly reflected in the legislation, but also are more broadly a reflection of the dysfunction of our political system today. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there. Uh, yesterday during the filibuster, I guess it was two days ago, um, uh, Governor Kane, Democrat from Virginia, was asking Senator Cruz a question. He said, you know, Senator, um, I'd be happy if you introduce uh, a piece of legislation, you know, next week, offering some alternate ways to revise this law. But the time to do that is in the normal legislative process. I think there's just been such a full-court blitz to try and stop this law. Because um, once it goes into effect, it, I mean, the first big date coming up is actually next week, October 1st. The exchanges, these health insurance exchanges open up. Mm -hmm. The next big date is January 1st, 2014. That's when the mandate goes into effect. The Republicans know full well, and I know and you know, that once a thing goes into effect, they can't stop it anymore. Once people start benefiting from it and using it and relying on it, it becomes what we say, it becomes entrenched. It becomes a part of the American fabric. Mm -hmm. And there's, not, there's no going back. So in, in their minds, there's no purpose of trying to fix it now. The only possible effort is to try and stop it or alternatively try to make political hay and fundraise and, 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 and gain notoriety from trying to stop it. Um, but once this goes into effect very, very, very soon, in the next few months, um, it's, we, we're going to be stuck with it for a long time. Which is really reflective of the bankruptcy of the opposition, that they are more interested in making political hay, as you say, and gaining political capital out of it, rather than legislating those things that could change it and arguably improve it. it it's a really, it's a really, it, it's kind of troubling. Um I understand why they do it, and I appreciate what they're trying to do, but the tactics and the, and the means of doing it, um, I, think, I think are just somewhat risky. 
um, and they're kind of playing with dynamite uh, uh, to an extent. Um, there, there are alternate plans to try to revise and reform it, although even even after this current debt, uh, uh, the continuing resolution and debt crisis ends, I'm not confident that Democrats will let anything come to pass because they're intent on letting this go into effect. They don't want to start taking parts away. Um, because the, the Affordable Care Act has been likened to this really complicated Swiss watch. And if you kind of move one cog and you remove another cog, the entire thing will stop working. Um, and, and I think there's just going to be a wait and see with this law going forward. Um, and as long as if a Republican comes to the White House in 2016, then it's possible um, we can see some some revisions. But I can't imagine that President Obama will allow uh, any meaningful changes to this law um, because, I mean, if nothing else, it might signal uh, a weakness to the law. Um, we've already seen the president delay various portions of it, and it wouldn't be crazy to think he might delay other portions of it as well. But I, I don't see the Congress opening up the Affordable Care Act in the next three years at all. In many ways, the decision to delay parts of it is is almost an acknowledgement to what, what you were talking about earlier, that this was a draft, that it came together, all 2,700 pages of it came together in a rather disjointed way. And I think that if people on both sides of the political aisle, people that care about this issue, were honest with themselves and with the American public, I think they would all agree that there are ways to improve it, ways to amend it, ways to make it better. But we have a political system that simply won't allow either party to address that. that that's exactly right. Um there, there's just so much riding on this law. And I think so much of it goes back to the manner in which it passed. Um, that story I told you how after mm-hmm. Scott Brown took Ted Kennedy's seat, that was mentioned by, I listened to almost the entire filibuster, that was mentioned by about three or four Republican senators. And I think a lot of them are just still bitter. They kind of feel like they were cheated, where although this law was passed, you know, it was passed, the manner in which it cleared the Senate was not the, the normal way. Also in the House, they used this weird reconciliation process, which I won't bore your listeners with, but it was very irregular. Right, but the other side of that argument is that from a constitutional perspective, it was also never intended that it would take 60 votes to pass anything in the U.S. Senate. That that's a function of Senate rules. That's the way it has evolved over over time with respect to Senate rules, and it's certainly not what the founders intended. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, the filibuster has been here for 100 years, and both parties relied on it. Um, and, and the Democrats used it very effectively during the Bush administration to stop judges and other things. So uh, I, that's why Harry Reid didn't do the so-called nuclear option. He could have, this this, this uh, uh, past few months, he could have used the so-called nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster, and he blinked. He didn't. Um, and I think both parties realize this is essential for their uh, for their own politics. The, the, when the shoe's on the other foot, uh, and if the, if the Republicans do gain the Senate um, in 2014, which is, I don't know, will happen or not, but the Democrats would certainly want to be able to utilize that that tool. Um, the filibuster, for better or worse, means for big laws you need 60. Um, and that's exactly what they had, that 60. You mentioned the Tea Party earlier. In many ways, this became a rallying point for the Tea Party. It was used as, as a rallying point for the Tea Party, which really came together because of tax policy. I mean, if we go back to its origins and Rick Santelli on, on, on CNBC, which was really the catalyst for it, it was not necessarily about Obamacare. That's right. It, it's remarkable. I mean, the Tea Party, and I've done a lot of research about this, but it, it, it for some reason there was something about the Affordable Care Act that really resonated with people. 
Um, and I think it has to do with a point we discussed before, how it kind of transforms relationships between the state and the government. And this 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 taps into some kind of a, a libertarian ethos for the American populace. This notion that Congress can't force me to do something. They can't force me to buy health insurance. They can't force me to, you know, buy broccoli. And it's really resonated with people. And the Tea Party spent two years, and, and arguably until this day, fighting over this exact point, uh, uh, marching. I mean, we had, uh, on March 20, I think it was March 21st, 22nd of 2010, when the Affordable Care Act passed the House, you had, I think, almost 50,000 Tea Partiers protesting at Capitol Hill, saying, this law is unconstitutional, don't do this to us, stop it. Um, there was massive opposition. I mean, I think more people were rallying uh, at the Tea Party than at certain recent marches in Washington, like the MLK at 50. Um, it, it was simply remarkable how galvanizing this law was. And I don't think without that social movement coming about, we would have had, we don't have had this. I, I kind of allude to this in the book, but the legitimacy of the court challenge, I think, was bolstered by the fact that this law had so much massive unpopularity. I don't think the court challenge would have gone nearly as far without this political backdrop. And yet, arguably, some would say it was very political reasons that caused Chief Justice Roberts to cast the vote that he did. We'll never know what was in the soul of John Roberts. Um, only, only he'll know what was in his soul. Um, but what we do know, and what a lot of the, the, the evidence suggests, is that at some point he decided to change his vote. We know his opinion was very clear that he thought that the law was unconstitutional, but he decided to save it. Now, why did he save it? We won't know, but we, we can speculate. He may have feared the political backlash against the Supreme Court from President Obama. Um, if you recall, President Obama has made no secret that he's willing to criticize the justices. Mm-hmm. After the uh, Citizens United case in 2010, at the State of the Union, he berated the justices with sitting five feet in front of him. Um, after the Obamacare case was argued in March of 2012, he made a number of comments basically telling the court, do the right thing, don't, don't, don't act crazy, um, and this cannot have been lost in the Chief Justice. Compound this with the fact that the case was decided June of 2012, roughly four months for the uh, presidential election. Um, this could have been a really big issue for the court, and, and, and it could be argued that the Chief Justice decided to save the court's credibility. He decided to not go ahead and strike it down, but he still issued an opinion that had a lot of language that places some severe limits on what the federal government cannot, can and cannot do. Ironically, there may be a very straight line, much straighter than, than any of us perhaps want to believe, particularly given some of the comments that former Justice O'Connor has subsequently made between Bush v. Gore and Chief Justice Roberts' decision in this case with respect to the court. Right. Um, and Bush v. Gore, of course, was a case where within 30-something days, the Supreme Court um, adopted a theory about uh, election law that really hadn't been discussed before. And in the process, they would not uh, reorder certain recounts in Florida. And, and, and they didn't actually hand the elections to George Bush, but by denying the recounts, that was the ultimate effect. And, and there was a lot of political unpopularity for the court. Um, before 2000, in public opinion polls, the court polled fairly well. Um, most people didn't know anything about the court. They didn't really care. But whenever the court is front and center, they're going to piss off half the country. Uh, whenever the court is doing something on such a divided basis, there's roughly half the country that may or may not be happy, maybe 45%, whatever. But there's a significant portion of America that will not like the ruling. In fact, 
polls show that people, the majority of people would have been happy if the court struck the law down, but there was still a sizable plurality that would not have been. And that can help um, contribute to the court's unpopularity. And when the court is not viewed as being unpopular, it's a very short leap to viewing the court as not legitimate. It's a very short leap because the judges are not elected, they're not accountable, they're only there based on their on their constitutional appointments by the president confirmed by the Senate. So to the extent that the courts need to maintain the legitimacy, it becomes imperative, at least in the mind of John Roberts, to not go too far, to keep within certain bounds. Um, and I think his position, which I wouldn't really call a compromise, but, but, but his of saving the law in the manner which he did uh, perhaps reflects that sentiment. And I guess the broader question is, what are the implications of that in the political realm now? It may very well be that there are unintended consequences from that as well. Well, in the political realm, John Roberts gave the case back to the, the, to the, to the election. I mean, by not striking it down, he gave the American people one more chance to ratify it, and that was the 2012 political election. Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney soundly. Um, and to the extent that that election was a referendum on health care, you know, the American people signaled they wanted. Of course, there's a, there's a vocal uh, group who didn't like it, but I'm sure they all voted for Mitt Romney. Uh, but they, they, they weren't the majority. In our electoral system, you know, elections have consequences. It's interesting to look at the polarization here versus the efforts by comparison that Chief Justice Warren went through in trying to create unanimity with respect to Brown. Oh, the story, the story of Brown's fascinating, but Earl Warren actually had the case re-argued, and he had to really cajole and twist arms. Um, and one thing people don't realize about Brown, first Board of Education, is the opinion by itself didn't actually desegregate schools. Um, at the very end of the opinion, uh, Earl Warren said that the school should be desegregated with, quote, all deliberate speed. And it wasn't until another decade passed that actually the Supreme Court got around to desegregate the schools. So what we all remember today is as this bold, strong opinion. The time was symbolic, but not very effective, um, because he was, he was able to get everyone to go along. In, in, in this case, um, there was not much chance of a compromise, because you had five, I'm going to say five justices who believe the law is unconstitutional. Um, John Roberts said the law is unconstitutional. Um, it was only by his by his funny saving construction that he construed it as a tax that the law survived. I don't think there was any chance to make this one nine zero. The only way this would have been nine zero would be if the predictions that became the case had come true. That of course this law is constitutional. Congress has the power to regulate commerce between the states. Health insurance is a multi billion dollar industry. How can this not be commerce between the states? But five justices seized upon the argument saying that this isn't about commerce. This is about regulating inactivity. And that they agreed with that, I think there's very little ground for compromise. Putting the Affordable Care Act aside for the moment, what do you see as the ongoing price that the court will pay for the controversy that surrounds this? Well, I think they they saved themselves that cost. John Roberts didn't strike it down. Um, The law was upheld. So I think the potential price they could have paid, we can speak hypothetically, would have been the president attacking the court in 2012 election, members of the Senate attacking them. Um, you can be certain the next time a justice is going to be appointed to the Supreme Court that this is going to be a bloodbath. How they how would they have approached the health care case? Um, but then again, the very next term, the court came down and struck down the Voting Rights Act. So I, I don't think the Roberts Court is, is afraid to exercise their muscles, so to speak. 
Um, but what I do think is that John Roberts said, listen, I'm going to be in this court for probably 25 more years, 30 years. This case will be a blip. We have other things to worry about. Let me save the backlash from this case so I can go on to do other things that are part of a bigger agenda. Josh Blackman, his book is Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare. It is just out from Public Affairs Press. Josh, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 